This is the truth of humanity. And one of the reasons that we are so compelled by these things, we are storytellers. And God has given us this narrative that's not just story, but accurate history. Have you ever just been shocked into clarity? Now, when I say this, I don't mean, you know, like buzz electrical shock, although I have a story about that. I had a game when I was younger that was a gift to me. So this tells you what people thought about me. This game, there was a, a, a round just thing in the center that had four handles and you'd take the handle and you'd pull it back. And then there were two modes to this game. Either the first person or everybody but the first, or I'm sorry, either the last person or everybody but the first person would get shocked when the middle lit up. So this was like a torture device for my friends and I. What we would do is, you know, we'd all have the handle and we'd play the different modes or whatever. And the, the center, would light up and then we'd all go to press the button on our handle as fast as we could. And you'd think you're the fastest until you got shocked. Like, I don't know why they made this for children. Because I'm pretty sure I should get an MRI from playing this once. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm more talking about just being shocked into, like, emotionally shocked into clarity. Let me give you a good example. Uh, well, you can be the judge of how good it is. Now, most of you in this room are old enough to remember this. Does anyone remember 1999 going into 2000? The Y2K stuff, right? Now, uh, every, it was all over the media, everywhere. Everyone was talking, every news channel, every newspaper, every show, they were all talking about this, is the power going to go out? Because they, they didn't write the code in the computer systems because they thought we would have gone past computer systems by the time the new millennium rolled around. Instead, we just started improving our computer systems. And so they weren't sure that when the millennium rolled around that the computer systems were going to be active and they were worried that the electrical grid was going to go out. That was the, the notion behind the Y2K scare. Now, I remember very vividly uh, New Year's Eve. Because I did not live in, well, anything you would come close to a palace, anywhere in the house you could hear what anyone was doing. So I remember very vividly the people counting down from 10 as the ball was dropping. And then me, as a young teenage boy, thinking, you know, it'd be hilarious if I went into the basement down to the circuit breaker. <laughs> and as everybody counted down, as they hit zero and said, Happy New Year, I shut the circuit breaker off and I got to listen to everybody freak out and scream. And then there was a moment where I thought that was really funny. But then the next second was when I clicked the circuit breaker back on, <laughs> is it going to work? <laughs> Like, did I pull this prank or did, you know, 
did God pull this prank on all of us, right? What is going to happen? And then I click it, and, you know, the lights go on, and everyone wonders what's going on, and I come up laughing out of the basement because I got everybody real good. But there was a moment where you, you know, we had been told leading up to it that they had taken care of the problem, they had figured out what they were going to do, uh, but everyone had this sort of doubt and this concern of, well, what's really going to happen when midnight hits? And then I messed with everybody, and I got them to really think hard, because to me it was really funny. But then when the lights came back on, you knew that there was a solution to the problem. The problem doesn't exist anymore because someone had come up with a solution, and now everyone is relieved. And that's what I mean by being shocked into clarity, because everyone was really messed up for about 10, 20 seconds when I left the lights off. But when the lights came on, it was, okay, everything's fine. That's what I mean. So I say that because tonight what we're going to discover, now we, we're dealing with the final night. This is Jesus's arrest. This is the arrest before the crucifixion. Um, this is a big deal. And this night has been talked about for several chapters up to this point because it's such a pivotal moment in human history. God is taking care of a problem. But what we're going to, discover to, going to discover tonight is that it's not just this chapter. It's not just this story. God has been pointing us in this direction for a very long time so that when the moment happened, when the solution showed up, if you're paying attention, you can receive clarity to know that Jesus is the Messiah and he really is the solution to the sin problem. He is the one who can save. So let's dig in and see what that looks like. So John chapter 18, it says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, well, that's what we covered last week, <laughs> Jesus' prayer. But when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples had entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples. So what you've got is Jesus has been talking to his disciples all throughout the Last Supper in the upper room. And then as they leave the upper room, he takes them on a walk and he's giving them their last lesson. As that lesson concludes, Jesus finds some time to go alone and pray to his Father and connect with God, the Father. And after that prayer, he comes back to his disciples as they're walking into the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're headed out over the Kidron Valley by the brook of the Kidron, uh, where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Judas, his one, one disciple out of the twelve, had already made up in his mind that he was going to betray Jesus. And he was on his way to collect his payment and to draw the temple guards to Jesus to arrest him. Now that's what's happening. That's the setting. I say, remember, have you ever been shocked into clarity? Here's a moment. Because I, I, I kind of wonder if John, in particular, through the Holy Spirit, mentions the Kidron Valley and the brook of Kidron because what you find out is one of the names for the Messiah is the son of David because he, he's a descendant of King David. The rightful heir to the throne of Israel comes through the throne of David. And 
the Messiah was often sometimes called David or son of David because they knew that the messianic line was through him. And Jesus is a descendant of David. But here's the interesting thing. In 2 Samuel verses, uh, chapters 15 through 17, here's what you find out. There is a rebellion. See, King David was on the throne, but his son Absalom had taken advantage uh, and started to spread some rumors and things about David uh, to try to take the throne away from his father. And where he got a lot of his information and a lot of ways to rebel against David was from David, one of David's closest advisors named Ahithophel. And this rebellion comes into full force in 2 Samuel chapter 15 because of the guidance Ahithophel gave to Absalom. So one of David's closest advisors turns his back on David and helps Absalom rebel against the king. And when this rebellion happens in full force, David flees from Absalom for a period of time. And when he flees, he flees over the Kidron Valley. Now let's put this into perspective. David, one of his closest advisors at Ahithophel, rebels and gives an enemy information on how to take out David. David runs away through the Kidron Valley near the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, the son of David, one of his closest advisors, Judas, betrays Jesus. And as he's doing so, Jesus heads over the Kidron Valley to accept that moment. The parallels are uncanny. And because that is mentioned in John's gospel, that it happened by the Kidron Valley, makes the parallel very clear. And so God has been shaking our attention for a thousand years at this point, now 3,000. But it's been a thousand years since David has run through the Kidron Valley. And a thousand years later, his descendant is doing the same thing because one of his closest advisors betrayed him. And the son of David is becoming the Messiah because he's doing what the Messiah is set out to do this night. Now, what is happening with Judas? Now, John doesn't get into some of the details with Judas that some of the other Gospels do. So what we find out is in Matthew 26 and 27, you see these two things take place. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And after his betrayal and Jesus goes to the cross, Judas has a, a recognition that he betrayed someone innocent. And so what he does is he throws the 30 pieces of silver. This is in Matthew 27. He throws the 30 pieces of silver back to the high priests and to the priests at the temple because he doesn't want it anymore. And those 30 pieces of silver were blood money now. So they could no longer belong to the temple treasury. So the priests decide to buy a potter's field with it. Now this is interesting because this was also predicted in Zechariah. 
In Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, it says this, I said to them, if it is agreeable to give you, to, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The princely price they set on me, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. So predicted nearly 500 years before the event was that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and those 30 pieces of silver would be thrown back at the temple and then used for the potter. And the temple bought a potter's field with those 30 pieces of silver. And if that isn't enough, Judas, after his betrayal, can't live with himself, and he hangs himself. Well, in 2 Samuel 15, Ahithophel, after David is on his way back to take the throne, also hangs himself. The betrayer of David and the betrayer of Jesus meet the same end. So the point is, God wants you to know that when he tells his story, he's making it very clear. So the, the details might be fuzzy, but once Jesus fulfills the events, you can't do anything but look back and go, God got my attention. And he's shaking us into clarity. So Judas, verse 3 Having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, this is what's gone on so far. Judas has betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He's brought the temple guards to Jesus. And when they get there, the temple guards ask, well, Jesus asks them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, what's written in your Bibles is the words, I am he. But the he is italicized for a very good reason. The italics there are because there is no he there. That was just put in by the translators to make the sentence make more sense to us in English. But what Jesus really responds with in Greek is, ego, I me, I am. The same words in the Septuagint in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that God says to Moses. When Moses asks the Israelites, asks God to say, when I go to the Israelites and they ask who sent me, what should I say? And God says, I am that I am. Ego I me. So when they ask Jesus if he's the one, he says, I am. In the same way that he's saying, not only am I who you're looking for, I am God. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Well, of course, they were appalled. If, if it was just a guy saying, oh yeah, I'm the guy you're looking for, that would not have been the reaction. They understood what Jesus was saying. They drew back and fell to the ground, and he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. 
Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. So what Jesus says is, all my disciples, let them go. Just take me. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Now Peter sometimes gets a bad rap. Peter makes a lot of decisions. He does things that are kind of, he puts his foot in his mouth. He does things rashly. But Peter had recently said to Jesus that he would be willing to die for him, that there's no way that Peter would deny him. Now, Jesus already told Peter that you're going to deny me three times before this night is over, but Peter still doesn't believe him. And as, Peter, as Jesus is getting arrested, Peter draws a knife, a small knife from his tunic, and cuts off the ear of one of the guards. And Jesus stops him because Jesus is going willingly because he knows what he has to do for humanity. He knows the sacrifice he has to give on our behalf. And he tells Peter to put the sword away. And he says, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Basically, he's telling Peter, don't get in the way of God's plan. I have to do this. This is for your benefit. Don't get in the way. Even though what's happening right now might seem dark or might not make sense to you, you don't have the eternal perspective that God does. Trust me, this is for your benefit. So then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, that's where we're going to close up tonight, but it's interesting. Now, what had gone on behind closed doors with the Jews and the high priests is they were having this discussion about what to do with Jesus. This guy who's stirring up trouble for us, he's making the Romans a little bit on edge because if there's upheaval in Jerusalem, the Romans are going to attack all of us because they do not put up with rebellion. And the Romans never lost a war. And they're coming for us if there's rebellion. And so the high priest actually says, Let's arrest, let's get Jesus arrested and hand him over to the Romans. It's better for one person to die than to allow him to go on doing what he's doing, causing trouble, because then the Romans will come in and wipe us all out. That's what Annas, the high priest, thinks he's saying. That's what he means by what he's saying. He doesn't realize that he's uttering prophecy. That what he actually said was it is better for one man to die for all of humanity. Jesus is about to go to the cross because of the order that Caiaphas gave. Because he sent the guards out to arrest Jesus. Because his idea was to protect the Jews. But in doing so, he's fulfilling God's plan as he's rejecting Jesus. Point being, 
whether you're for or against God, you're going to end up following through on God's plan. It's just whether or not you've received the blessing of salvation or not. Because in the end, you're just going to be angry that you didn't do what God asked you to do if you go against him. And in trying to go against Jesus, he actually states Jesus' mission. One man to die for us all. One man to die for the sin of the world. Now, I know that so far it's been short, but I've got a little something that I hope shocks you into clarity. What we've been talking about. Now, clearly, the prophecy in the Bible and the par parallels, the way that Jesus lived his life, is shocking. The fact that David and Jesus went through a very similar experience in the exact same place is unbelievable, a thousand years apart from each other, and both of them are recorded in history. It's also interesting that where Jesus is crucified is Golgotha, which also happens to be a way of saying Goliath of Gath. David defeated Goliath when he was still a shepherd, and he buried the head of Goliath somewhere outside of Jerusalem, outside the Jebusite camp. You can find that in 1 Samuel 17. And Golgotha happens to mean the place of the skull. It also happens to be a way to say Goliath of Gath. So Jesus was crucified where the head of Goliath was buried by David, his predecessor. All of this points to Jesus. It's unbelievable. But this is the truth of humanity. And one of the reasons that we are so compelled by these things we are storytellers, and God has given us this narrative that's not just story, but accurate history. And we can look back at these things and be compelled by them and moved by them because humans are moved by story for a reason, because we're created in the image of God, and through our lives, we find out that we end up in one of two camps. All of human life is either a tragedy or a comedy. Now, the historic meaning of a tragedy and a comedy goes like this. If you're in a tragedy, you seem to be someone who has it all together. All the stars seem to be aligned for you, but somehow it all falls apart in the end, and you find out you didn't have it under control. Achilles, the great Greek warrior, that myth, he seemed unstoppable and undefeatable until a little piece of his heel was nicked. And that's a tragedy for him. Romeo and Juliet loved each other and had a plan, and they had a way to put everything in place. But in the end, they confused each other and ended up losing each other forever because of a tragedy. What they thought they had figured out goes away in the end. Now, the opposite of that is a tragedy. Those who are inept and have flaws and failures it's why Forrest Gump is called a, a dramedy, because Forrest Gump always seemed to never have the things in place to make him as good or as smart or as useful as those around him, but he keeps stumbling into things through his good nature and winding up successful in spite of himself. My favorite example of this is the Pink Panther with Steve Martin. Right? Someone who seems completely clueless the whole time and always stumble and somehow stumbles his way into success. And this is the truth. This is the eternal truth of mankind. All of mankind will end up in either a tragedy or a comedy. 
you will either think to yourself, because you've experienced X amount of success in human life, whether it's career or otherwise, that you've got it all put together and you've got a plan and you think you're good enough. You think you've made it. You think you've done enough good to reach the kingdom of heaven. But what you failed to realize is that heaven is a perfect place and anything less than perfection cannot enter or it ruins it because it's no longer perfect. And none of us have reached perfection. Not a single one. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 3. And at the end, if you rely on yourself and you think you've got it all put together and you stand before the throne of God, now all of a sudden, you're going to see the difference between you and perfection. And all that gusto turns into tragedy. And you realize you did it to yourself because there was a sacrifice in place for you that you could have taken to get to the other side of the throne, to spend eternity with God. But for those of us who are willing to recognize that we're all just a bunch of goofballs who don't quite have it under control and are stumbling our way through life and realize that we're imperfect in that we fall short and we fail to the lusts of the flesh. We fail to the things, to materialism, to greed, to lust, to whatever it is. That we fail in sight of the law, of the perfect law of God, that we fall short of it. And we know that if we were standing across a, a chasm between God's perfection and ourselves, and there was no bridge to get across it, that we're stuck. But thankfully, Jesus offers himself up as a sacrifice to be the bridge for us to cross and to cover us with his righteousness and make us perfect in front of God so that when we repent of our sin and turn our hearts to God, that we get clothed with Christ's righteousness and we can stand before God in perfection, not because of who we are, but we stumble into perfection because of who Jesus is and what he did for us and our life becomes a comedy and it works out in the end. And that's a shocking truth. How will it end for you? As a tragedy or a comedy? I know for me that I want my life to be a comedy, and it's why I take so much energy to laugh. Because I know I'm not perfect, and I know I've got a lot of gaps. But I'm so thankful that Jesus fills the gap for me and gives me a way to reconnect with the Father. So my life, to put, it, to put it best, the words of Joshua, as he takes over for Moses, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this moment of scripture, for this truth that rings out. Thank you that you've been willing to give us so much depth and history recorded for us so that when the event takes place that you've been planning for, we can see it clearly. You've been pointing us to Jesus for a long time. And I pray that tonight, or whomever hears this message, if they're listening to the recording, that it became clear. The story from Genesis to Revelation points us completely to Jesus, and it's for this so our life can go from a tragedy to a comedy, that we can stumble into perfection because of the righteousness of Jesus, and that we can be humble enough to turn from ourselves, to turn from our sin, 
point our hearts at him and accept his sacrifice and be willing to serve him from this point forward. In Jesus' name, amen.